show me your watch because I'll show you where we do our watches and we're up there so I don't drop it. Mm-hmm. So my dad wore that every day that I oh, remember yes. as a kid. Wound it every day. Mm-hmm. He died in 2003 with mm-hmm. it on him and we've never touched it since. Right. Just have to open the back. It's, a, it's been a while since it was opened. So that is how the story starts. I thought it might be interesting to see if I could get my dad's watch to work again. My dad's watch carries the memory of him. That is why it is important to me. I don't need it to tell the time. That is what my phone is for. But what happened instead was more of a ramble. A ramble back in time, through which I realised how little I knew of, or even considered, time. I was in Stoke's clock shop on McCurtain Street in Cork with Philip Stoke, who is skilled in the science and art of measuring time and the making of timepieces, otherwise known as horology, a profession that has been passed down to him from his father and grandfather. Um, the in the sort of same mid eighteen hundreds, there was, wasn't too or wasn't too many people that had clocks. You know, they weren't they were the rich men's. Thing. They weren't the, the Joe Bloggs didn't have one, um, so that's why public clocks were so important. I mean, the very early, early public clocks actually didn't even have dials. They had no faces. All they had was bells. One, people weren't literate; they couldn't read the time anyway. And two, the only thing they did was it was to call them from work to to to, to home. So they all they needed to know was was it six o'clock in the morning, so they're supposed to be out in the fields working, or there was six o'clock in the evening and they were heading home. So the, the bell was more important than the clock in the early ones. Think of the public clocks in your town. For Cork, the one that comes to mind is the clock in Shandon, in St Anne's Cathedral, made by Mangans of Cork. In 2013, it stopped and Stokes got the contract to fix it. So when you were repairing this clock recently, we've been up and down here to- 15 times in the day. If it's as good an exercise as you'll get, climbing the steps and fighting the pigeons, the clock was the least of our worries. So this this movement is actually bigger than the movement in Big Ben. Um, you can see Mangan's name on it. Here it was. Went in 1847. The clock was known as the Four Face Liar because they always the four faces were on different times, and they used to they could be hours out at times so when we were restoring it um, all the locals were hoping we'd keep it as the four-faced lair because that's what that's what it's known as but unfortunately the uh, the instructions were to keep it on time the idea for the clock was proposed by councillor delay at a meeting of Cork corporation in 1843 his concern was that the poor of the city had no access to their own watches and clocks and were therefore in danger of poisoning themselves by not knowing the time when prescribed medicine should be taken. When you think, you look at these gears now, what are they? They're about 12 inches in diameter. But they're, they're 120, 160 years old. They've lasted time. They were so well made. You know, the quality, you can't, I mean, you just can't beat it. You won't get it today anywhere, you know. That's the sound of time. And there was a man who used to come up here twice a week and wind it, and he put a key onto uh, it, goes onto another gearing first, and it slips onto that. And he literally had a crank handle and would turn it 
to wind up these weights that would probably weigh about 200 weight each and there was five of them so he uh, earned his crust. Shandon dominates the skyline of Cork. The tower looks over the whole city and it has been calling the people of Cork to work and to prayer for centuries. Yeah, like we're on top of the city. Yeah. Oh yeah, you go up there now, you can look down on all the bells. I started to look up at the buildings as I walked around, and I was amazed at how many public clocks there are, particularly around Dublin. Philip's family has been working on public clocks in our towns and cities for decades. Do you know why I say that we meet there? If we stand there at the spire, you can look and you can see the influence of clocks as street furniture because we can see nearly six clocks or so around the street, O'Connell Street, down Henry Street and on O'Connell Bridge. Even though the buildings have changed ownerships and changed characters and everything, the clock still is prominent on the front of the building. I mean, if you look down Henry Street here, we'll see Arnott's. And then you look behind us here, you've McDowell's, which is probably the oldest clock. And McDowell's, uh, the ring house, we've got the GPO which is very prominent and a very a, a lovely Art Deco type clock. Um, and then you look on the other side, which you have Cleary's, the famous clock. Many romances and fallouts have happened in, <laughs> under Cleary's clock. My father made that about, uh, oh, I'd say pushing 35 years ago around that. It's a nice piece to be associated with, so we're, we're proud of it. But yeah, don't walk down and we'll yeah, yeah. see where we go. In that short walk from O'Connell Street to Stephen's Green, we pass so many clocks. Ballast House Clock, Custom House Clock, Trinity Clock, Royal College of Surgeons, and so on. I had never before considered the history of these public timepieces. A history that stretches back centuries. There are a few people quietly working away at preserving and documenting Ireland's horology heritage. People such as David Bowles, a pharmacist by trade, but whose passion is horology. The clocks we're talking about are between 200 and 300 years and more old. The watches are similar. That's, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 generations. And the fact that they've survived to that time is extraordinary. So as a teenager, I became interested in them and started going to um, the odd auction room. And then I discovered that you could go over to London. There was a cheap excursion overnight. £39 day return, Dunleary, Hollyhead, London. You go to Portobello Road at six in the morning with a torch and that was when the dealers arrived with all their produce and if you knew what you're looking for, you could find pocket watches and once you knew enough about them, you could find interesting ones at a nominal price and that was how I became interested. David had brought together a collection of Irish clocks and watches from his colleagues at the Dublin Clock Society. The purpose of these beautiful objects was to keep time. But have you ever given thought to how time was measured? And one of the earliest uh, things that people measured was things like they they realised the moon came in a certain cycle. You can find bones 20,000 years old with date scratches on them, obviously where they uh, met off the the frequency of the moon to keep track of the time. Also, what some people consider the oldest time measuring instrument in the world is in um, Newgrange, approximately, I think, 5,000 years old. Um, and it 
in theory, could be called a time-measuring instrument, in a sense, but the earliest clocks appeared in Ireland in the 15th century, 1475, thereabouts. We know very little about them. Um, after about 1600, they became slightly more common, clocks and watches, but it would be only in probably people in castles who would have one clock, perhaps. Yeah. Here, just where, yeah. We have in Ireland a unique collection of medieval Gothic and Renaissance clocks, mostly German, and dating from the 1400s. The clocks are part of the Gort collection housed in Bonratty Castle. Horologist Nigel Barnes showed them to me. This is one of the most important clocks any of us are ever going to see. Um, First of all, although we know it's very similar to this clock that the Cardinal of Naples owned in 1400. It has a dial showing the day of the week. Because on the dial there is one hand only, the hour hand. There's no, there's no um, minute hand. And on this... So what's this third dial here? Alarm. It's an alarm clock. From the 1400s? Yeah, yeah. Cardinals had to meet people. How did these people make these wheels so accurately out of iron with what we might have considered very crude facilities? I don't think it's made to look... um, doesn't look like this one ever had a case. It's made to have open wheels that are moving very slowly and in this sort of rhythmic way. Why were people making clocks of this complexity in the 1400s? It's the state of the art, and they're made for wealth. They're made as objects of wonder and amazement. Um, I think the main fascination is the engineering. Forget the clocks, yes, but the engineering. And the execution of the work. The design and layout is one thing, the using the materials, making it work, that's something else. And what tools would they have had? When you're looking at the craftsman, you're Basically, amazed. the tools of a blacksmith, except that they were really good at it. There are so few of these types of clocks available. The British Museum has a couple. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam has a couple. But we're blessed in Ireland with this tremendously important collection at at Bonratti. It's very beautiful. I was in awe. The mind of German engineering in the 1400s. David then went on to show me clocks that were made in Ireland in the 1600s. Um, This clock happens to be the earliest Irish bracket clock known, made about 1685. At first glance you might say it's very similar to a London clock but careful study shows everything is different. It undoubtedly was completely made in Dublin, along with the case, the wheels, every detail, hands, everything was made in Dublin. Most clocks, old clocks, people know of are grandfather clocks, called long case clocks. They are tall, height of a man, six, seven feet. They're always weight-driven. But a bracket clock is a a small clock that might fit in a mantelpiece, and it's spring-driven. Now, they happen to be called bracket clocks 
but they never actually sat on a bracket on a wall. They actually would sit on a side table, um, a table against a wall. The, the clock would sit on that. It was spring-driven, and it would go during the daytime. And frequently, uh, because they were so expensive, a person would not couldn't afford more than one. So when they go to bed at night, there's always a handle on the top of the clock. They're quite small. They'd lift it by the handle, carry it up to the bedroom, and then put it on the table beside their bed. Now, the beauty of that was that um, most of these Dublin ones didn't actually strike. You had to pull a cord to make them strike. I can give you an example. This one here, when you pull the cord, um, it makes it means that if you're in the dark at night, you can tell the time. There were no matches in those days, no electric lights. So you pull this little cord in the dark beside your bed. You'll hear a strike. That's the hours. Three, four, five, six, seven, one quarter, two quarters, three quarters. That's three quarters past seven, which means it's sometime between quarter to eight and eight. Even on a dark winter's morning, in 1685, an Irish-made clock could tell you it is quarter to eight. There are ancient clocks all around our cities. St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, in 1560, installed the first public clock in Dublin, which survived till the late 19th century, when it was replaced by the current mechanical clock. Just down from the cathedral, nestled between the other ancient cathedral of Christ Church, is home to a haven of horology, the timepiece antique clock shop. Its owner, Kevin Keller, specialises in Irish horology. Tell me a little bit about the Irish makers. We had a, yeah. quite a, a, a history. Of yeah, well, if you could consider the IT world and how Ireland has just exploded in the last 20 years with, with all of these industries, well, pretty much clockmaking would have been very much like that. And uh, from here to the river, you would have found dozens and dozens of very good clockmakers. These were celebrated makers providing something that would almost be like a magic box of tricks. You imagine the superstitious nature of people in the late 17th and early 18th century and you're putting time in a box and it it just kind of goes against all grains and might even be considered black magic you know but um, the Irish makers have something that is it's a bit like the race itself there's so many different races that have come in different races and different names coming up on the um, on the dials of these clocks uh, we had a, a very strong influx of uh, Huguenots. So you've got strange names like Visor and Vidus, and then you have um, what I think is a Norman name is Blundell and Lestrange. Um, unusual um, racial backgrounds but coming in, and a bit like today, you have um, so many um, young people whose parents, including my own, are not of, of this island. And uh, they brought with them these similar but also diverse skills and you end up with a hybrid product so what you see is an Irish clock here it's got no relationship to anything that you'd see in an English clock Um, and sometimes we have Irish makers that went to London and um, like the McCabe's uh, you have the house of McCabe in London very seriously um, good quality people in the 19th century and of course they're from Lurgan so um, it, the traffic is both ways. Depends on the money, I suppose, as they say, follow the money. Uh, and that was a problem. 
In Ireland, if a maker was way, way better than his contemporaries, there was a great temptation to move abroad. And a common question I'd be asked is, who was the finest Irish clockmaker or watchmaker? And unfortunately, the finest ones probably left the country. Um, There was a Joseph Williamson who moved to London at a very early date. He made um, some of the finest clocks in Buckingham Palace, um, English clocks. People would call them London fine, English London clocks. He was instrumental in making them. Um, And we only happen to know that by one little mention somewhere that he was from Ireland. They didn't necessarily boast about the fact they were from Ireland. The Irish have made clocks that range from the exquisite to the bizarre. The 13th Earl of Meath of Kilruddery Estate in County Wicklow engineered one of the most ingenious yet bizarre clocks that exists. He decided, um, as many before him had tried, that it'd be interesting to make an accurate clock driven just by water. This had been tried for literally centuries, literally maybe thousands of years. It was tried back in Egyptian times. And he decided he would work out how to make a more accurate one than anybody else had ever made. And he ended up making a clock. If you saw it, you would laugh because you'd see things like a a motorcycle wheel, I think, a bicycle chain, uh, lavatory cisterns um, and such like, and a trickle of water coming down and hitting little things and things moving. But the thought behind it is extraordinarily clever. We're now in the, sort of the works department of the water clock. The current Lord Mead showed me the clock. It's a primitive uh, homemade job, but it shows great um, ingenuity and knowledge of physics. But my grandfather was a very keen amateur horologist. The clock was working in 1906, but he didn't get the chiming system done until 1909. This entire clock, I should say, is made from bits of scrap pipes, an old bicycle wheel um, and chain, OLED, and even some Meccano. It's 1890 Meccano. The Rullery's clock uses the water from the nearby Sugarloaf Mountain to power the clock. First to push the pendulum, then to power the clock train, which drives the hands, and to power the striking train, which triggers the hammer that strikes a gong on the hour. It may look primitive, but it is incredibly sophisticated in its engineering. I never thought how a clock worked, and I have admired them more as beautiful rather than functional objects. I asked Kevin to explain to me how a clock works. Well, a grandfather clock um, will be driven by weights. So you have these cast iron weights. Sometimes they're lead, but cast iron is, is more normal. It would be 12 to 14 pounds typically in, in the weight. So that's mounted by cord to a barrel, which is very much like a fishing reel. And um, so the line is wrapped around that, and that gives rotary power to a series of wheels. Now. The bit that you hear ticking is called the escapement. Literally is the escaping of power. So it allows the power of the weight to be released slowly over a period of a week as opposed to the weight dropping immediately from a height down to the floor. So the piece that's ticking, um, literally it's, it's divided out in a count of teeth and that allows for 
the capability of the clock to count the number of swings of the pendulum. So the clock is not really telling time, it's counting the number of swings of the pendulum, it's just that we can relate one to the other. And um, in our minds we look at the face and we see the hands, this one is reading a quarter to three, and we can relate subconsciously to the time of day, but in actual fact all it's doing is counting the swing of the pendulum. And uh, it then has a series of wheels for the bell, um, which will be triggered off by the hands on the hour, and you'll get something like that. So the clock is a means of counting. As Kevin says, it is time in a box. What distinguishes it from a timepiece is that it has a bell. As for a watch, which they began to make in the 1600s, they have another set of engineering challenges, which, as Nigel explains, all relate to scale. How difficult would it be to just keep scaling down the work So if you start with making a clock, if you set yourself the challenge of, could I make one half that size? And you keep doing that successively, and this is how watch makers are trained. They start with clocks, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. I think a lot of, especially the older generation of the watch makers, would have taken a pride in how small... They love the tiny little lady's watch with a movement in it maybe no bigger than half an inch across. This is probably the oldest surviving watch Irish made. If it's not the oldest, it's amongst the oldest. All these old watches, now we're talking this time about 1685, all these old watches had what were called pair cases. That meant that you had, the watch had a pocket watch they're all pocket watches it's about maybe an inch and a quarter in diameter and it has a winding hole in the rear you put your key in they're all key wound you have to put a little key in to wind it up and then you put it into the inside the outer case to keep the dust out of it and um, that then you carry it around on a chain they're always on a chain or a cord and this was made about 1685 by a person called John Davis of Dublin of whom we don't know an awful lot. Um, and that would be when Irish watches, to all intents and purposes, appeared, 1685. When you took that clock out, there was some sort of label in, internally, what was it? Yes. Um, between the outer case and the inner case, it became traditional at a later stage to put little circular discs of paper into the back of the watch. And these would have an advertisement for the watch, in this case it would be the watch repairer, it says William Sloan, watchmaker and clockmaker at Ballymena. And you can see there's actually maybe three or four, it could be six or eight papers inside the one watch. So this watch, which was made in the 1680s, this was repaired in the, 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 the so they, Yes, this was still being used. The, the astonishing thing was that a, a watch in those days could go on being used for 60 or 80 years. Um, and if it was looked after, it could still go. Now, what a lot of people don't realise is as I mentioned, long case clocks were treasured and could pass from father to son and stay in the same house for generations. It was a stately home. It could stay there for 300 years. On the other hand, a pocket watch um, had to be carried around. They were much, much more vulnerable to wear and tear, being dropped, being stolen by highwaymen. If you read the old papers and back to as early as maybe 1690, you will see all the time reports of... Uh, 
a man in Grafton Street had his pocket watch stolen. The strange thing is that the items most sought after for stealing were his pocket watch, his gold pocket watch and his wig. So watches were stolen and when they were stolen they were almost invariably melted down. In the National Museum of Ireland, Collins Barracks, you can see Irish watches that have survived. In what's in store, you can browse to your heart's content. And it is here I met the now retired curator and keeper of the collection, Michael Kenny. Our silver collection, there's our watch collection, there's our scientific instrument collection. It's a browser's, a little browser's paradise. And when I worked here, I used to, on occasion, come over here at lunchtime myself. It's a sad case, just to look at my little things. You know. But when you do get into them, they really talk to you. Uh, and some of them uh, have, it's amazing that some of them have retained their working mechanism. I remember pulling open a drawer here that I had some difficulty opening and finally giving it a tug. And as soon as I gave the tug, one or two of the watches started to tick, as if they were looking for attention. Now those are watches from about 1800, maybe 1820, and there they were ticking away happily. I mean, they, they literally talked to you. Now, this is a really important watch. It's by a man called John Donegan. John Donegan was a famous Irish watchmaker. Certainly he was around in the 1840s and 1850s in Dame Street. So if you had a watch by John Donegan of Dame Street, you had an extremely important watch. And because around this time, a lot of watches start to come in from America and from England, mass production was taking on Irish watchmakers were gradually being reduced from being makers of watches to assemblers of watches and eventually just retailers of watches. But uh, John Donegan made the claim anyway that he was the last of the Irish watchmakers. Now, whether he was or wasn't, but he certainly was the one with the the, the most fa- the one of greatest fame. His reputation was, was huge. And a watch by John Donegan was something to be much sought after. And you can see why. It is utterly beautiful. Describe it a little bit. You have an outer case, an inner case, all hinged. So you have hinge after hinge after hinge. Open the front to open the back and to finally see the actual mechanism, which is still happily ticking away. He is by far the most important Irish watchmaker of all time. He was also an Abbott nationalist supporting Irish manufacture, Um, and he employed up to 100 workmen and every part of the watch was made there. He made the watch cases on his own premises right from the raw gold. He probably took in scrap gold and melted it and made it into cases. That was all done in the workshops. He made the dials, the hands, um, and he made the glasses even. He made the the glass for the watch. Everything was made in his own workshop. 23,000 watches He was very well in with the Catholic Church and therefore, as far as I can see, virtually every priest and nun in Ireland ended up with the Dunnigan Watch or Bishop. Now, one or two of the people who worked for him were members of the Fenian movement. There was a gentleman from Selbridge called William Hampson. He was listed in in one of the state trials as being a watchmaker with John Dunnigan in in Dame Street. And uh, he was also somebody, obviously, with uh, strong political inclinations who ended up in the Fenian movement. And according to another famous Fenian, John Devoy, 
ended up uh, in jail and being sentenced to 10 years in jail. I think spent time in England, emigrated to America, and finally died in the 1870s of yellow fever, laying telegraph poles in Cuba. So it's a, it's a long way from Dame Street to Cuba. Yes. May well have worked on this very watch, for all we know, because this watch is 1850s, 1860s. And we might well be able to, if, because it's well made, we may get to open it, and we can. And there it is, beautiful watch. There's a level of detail and a level of precision, uh, which is amazing when you consider that those people didn't have access to you know, CAD or any of the things that were <laughs> out there now. They did it the hard way. They didn't have electricity. They no. didn't have electricity. And one of the problems with the very early watches, you get an example of it here, uh, one of the problems with the very early watches was that they had difficulty in regulating the escaping of the power. In other words, when you watch, wound a watch, wound it hard, it was trying to go fast until the power went out of it. And then it went the opposite extreme, it went slow. So the problem was how to regulate the escape of power from the watch, so to, to keep your time uniform. And uh, they solved that in different ways. And one of the ways in which they solved it was they wound a tiny, tiny chain. I don't know, you can hardly even see it. There's a tiny, tiny miniature chain which is wound from the the power, the spring, and round a little tiny cone called a fusée. And that helped to regulate the escape of the power. When the watch was wound very tight, the little tiny chain was pulling on the, the narrow part of the cone. When the watch was getting weak, that tiny chain was pulling on the wider diameter of cone. And in that way, it helped to regulate the escape of the power. And those little tiny, tiny chains called fusée chains, they're just about visible to the naked eye, and the making of them must have been a horrendous process. Incredible engineering that measures time. And as I came to some understanding of the mechanism of a clock, I had to ask, how do the people who design and make the clock know what time it was in the first place? Now, all of these clocks were made long before radio signals or telegraph signals or anything like that. So they would have all been kept to time from a sundial. Anybody who would live uh, in the city, there would be a city clock um, or a large town. Uh, there'd be a town clock which would strike the hours. So they could get the time from that. Now, of course, Dublin was different time to London. Galway was different to Dublin. Uh, 25 minutes, 20 minutes, think, in the difference. But the difference didn't matter. If everybody was at the same time, it didn't matter. But if you lived away from a town and there was no town bell that you could hear, everybody would have a sundial in their garden and then they would adjust the clock uh, from the sundial. They'd read the time of the sundial and go in and set their clock. Now, the other curious thing about that was if you look at the shadow of the stick from the sun, it always travels clockwise. That's providing you're in the northern hemisphere and that's why the hands on the clock go clockwise. Show me some of your sometimes. I don't know, half-water here. It's very important. It's known as a mechanical equatorial dial by T. Mason, Dublin. Uh, I would say it's... I'm looking at that one, I'd say it's 1840s or 1850s. It's a portable sundial. 
And the difference, of course, is that the regular sundial, that's the flat one we're looking at here, sundial is only good for the latitude at which it's made. You know, if you go 10 degrees north or 10 degrees south, your sundial is isn't going to, it's going to have to be built differently. It's good for, for a particular latitude. The portable sundial solved all that by having a, a sliding plate which could be set for whatever latitude you were at. So if you knew what latitude you were at, you could set your sundial accordingly. So your sundial has become portable. Extraordinary is that these were so sophisticated and they're highly, 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 highly sophisticated. And it, it needed a, a level of precision, it also needed a level of knowledge of knowledge of the earth and its movements and its comings and goings and the sun and the stars and the tides and all of that. That sort of knowledge was always the preserved probably of a minority of people, but the amazing thing is that, yes, it was there. Time may be of some importance to certain people, most ordinary people, as long as they might have a factory whistle that would tell them when to go to the factory, and that was all that mattered. Ordinary working-class people wouldn't have a clock at all, certainly not in earlier days. All they needed to know was as long as they all got to the factory at the right time and left at the right time. But the one place time was crucially important, and that was at sea. Before there were any radio signals or GPS or sat-nav or whatever, if you were at sea, the only way you could work out where you were, there were two simple, simple things you had to do. And once you measured those two measurements, you knew where you were. One was the height of the sun above the horizon at midday. And you had a sextant to measure that. And with that, you knew what line of latitude you were on. But you couldn't work out your longitude. That would be how far around you were on this line of latitude. And the only way that could be done would be if you knew the time the sun was at its height midday, if you knew the exact time of that, you could work out exactly where you were. But you had to have a timepiece to tell you your time. Every ship would have at least one ship's chronometer, which was a very expensive, very, very accurate, um, like a very large watch. He would have that on board, on the ship, securely mounted, and his ship would be docked in Dublin. And he might have sailed from America, from Liverpool, whatever. Um, And he would want to know, was his chronometer correct? He would like to know the latest time. So the way that was achieved was the ballast office, which, as I say, was on the corner of Westmoreland Street and Aston's Quay. On the very roof of that, at the corner next to O'Connell Bridge, they had this large, what they call, time ball. Now, by chance, a friend of mine spoke to a very elderly man, I think it was 1986, he spoke to this man who was in his 90s, and he said he well remembers with his father going down to O'Connell Bridge, it would have been Sackville Street Bridge, at the ballast office with his father, and he said there was all the noise of rush of um, cartwheels with iron rims over cobblestones and so on, and then coming up to one o'clock when the time ball was to fall, um, there was a gradual hush because the, um, ca- the cabbies and so on would all stop, the gentlemen would take out their pocket watch, they'd all watch the, the time ball, then it would fall, 
they'd all set their watch and then all the noise had built up again they'd all start again he said he vividly remembers the hush descending over the whole street um, and um, but for them it was important for the mariners it was fundamentally important there were other systems being operated the transport system from London to Dublin was basically train to Hollyhead and then the boat from Hollyhead to Dublin now, when that train system got going, 1845, uh, they started using London time on the whole train circuit. So every time the train set off from Euston Station in London, uh, a man arrived from the Admiralty with a high-quality pocket watch. He'd hand it to the official on the train, who would then carry the time all the way to Hollyhead and then give it to the local people at each station. Then, when he got to Hollyhead, he'd hand it on to an appropriate person on the boat to Dublin, who then carried the watch to Dublin. Uh, and then the time in Dublin would be given to the GPO. Um, and then the watch would be given on the next boat to go back to Hollyhead and back to London. And that started in 1845 and continued, as far as I know, until I think it was 1931. That was just to synchronise the time, to make everybody make sure everybody is using London time, because the train and boat operated on London time. And I know about this differences that we had even within our country, within our, as you say, the difference between Galway and Dublin was 20, 25 minutes. When did we have that unified? It was around railway. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, basically, it didn't matter, as I said, if you were in Galway, all everybody had the same time. It was different to Dublin, but sure, it took days to get from Dublin to Galway, so that didn't matter. But once they introduced the railways, 1830 or 40, but 1840, then they began to standardise and use Dublin time. England used London time, Ireland used Dublin time. And that was fine. We all had the same time. Eventually, 1916, we standardised and we started all using Greenwich time. In 1916, months after the Easter Rising, the House of Commons in London introduced Greenwich Mean Time in Ireland and abolished Dublin Mean Time which was 25 minutes behind. This was the Time Ireland Act of 1916. But I'm going to go back again to the 1800s, because irrespective of the time zone, there is the question, how do you ensure that public clocks are all telling the same time? Report of the Committee of Science of the Royal Dublin Society on Improving the Regularity of Public Clocks in Dublin, 1873. Accurate time is at present procured in Dublin either from the observatory of Dunsink by a chronometer carried backwards and forwards between the city and the observatory or from Greenwich by a signal received every morning at 25 minutes before 10 o'clock. The former is the way in which time has hitherto been obtained by the ballast board but we do not recommend the arrangement. The Greenwich signal might be repeated at any number of places in Dublin but at present it is received only at the post office and by one chronometer maker, Mr Moore of Eden Quay. And some of the other clockmakers send an assistant to the post office in the morning with a chronometer to obtain correct time. To ascertain how far the present system of regulating clocks is satisfactory, we have had a pocket chronometer compared on the 5th of August 1873 with the clocks at all the stations on the Kingstown line and with several of the public clocks of Dublin. The following are the results of these comparisons. We were not prepared for so many and such great discordances. Railway stations... Westland Row, first clock, 
One minute, two seconds slow. Second clock, two minutes, 13 seconds fast. Lansdowne Road, two minutes, 28 seconds fast. Sydney Parade, three minutes, 13 seconds fast. Booterstown, 13 seconds fast. Black Rock, 53 seconds fast. Seapoint, one minute, 43 seconds fast. Monkstown, one minute, 17 seconds slow. Kingstown, 33 seconds fast. Public clocks. General post office, 13 seconds fast. Ballast office, one minute, two seconds slow. Alliance Gas Company, seven minutes, 13 seconds fast. Rathmines Township, two minutes, 47 seconds slow. Custom House, three minutes, 47 seconds slow. Faulkner's, three minutes, 47 seconds slow. Kinnahan's, one minute, seven seconds slow. And they felt this was very unsatisfactory and there were complaints in the media. So they decided to set up a system that had been invented abroad of where you would have one very accurate clock. So in their case, they set up a very accurate clock in headquarters, the Royal Dublin Society headquarters, and then they brought a, a single electric wire from that to a number of other clocks around Dublin. So the the other, what they call slave clocks, would be slightly out, and then every day they'd be corrected precisely at midday or whatever to the exact second. On the correction of errors in the distribution of time signals by Sir Howard Grubb, Vice President, Royal Dublin Society, 1899. It is hardly necessary at this period of the 19th century to enlarge on the importance of having correct time available. And the Royal Dublin Society recognised this many years ago by establishing a system of synchronised clocks in Dublin, controlled from a central clock in this house, which clock was itself checked by a daily signal from either Greenwich or Dunsink. That same Sir Howard Grubb, who set up the RDS time circuit, was, along with his father, Thomas Grubb, an important scientific figure in Ireland. There's a lovely telescope there. One of our prime instrument makers in the 19th century was called Grubb. It was Thomas Grubb, and Grubbs had their works up uh, originally around Portobello Bridge and later up in Rathmines. And there's a little lane we're still in Rathmines near, near the town clock called Observatory Lane. And that's where the Grubbs had their factory. And the Grubbs made t- uh, telescopes of the highest order and they were, they were abroad places like the Imperial Observatory in Vienna, the Great Observatory in Melbourne and even in Mecca. The Grub, Grubbs telescopes went abroad and uh, they had a major factory in Dublin which lasted there until after the First World War. Uh, but uh, they, they were in the period 1850s to 1900, Grubbs telescopes were out, out there among the best in the world. Sir Harold Grubb is also clockmaker to one of Dublin's landmarks, the Farmley Clock Tower, dating 1885. You can see the clock tower as you drive to the Westling Toll Bridge over the River Liffey. I could keep travelling around Ireland, looking at the vast range of public clocks, but this was my last clock on my journey. Donald Ross, an OPW tour guide at Farmley, showed me the clock tower. Now this is the actual works of the clock. 
when Sir Howard built this clock, for at least two months afterwards, he had a telescope over at his works at Rat Mines, and he could actually look over at the clock here and monitor it to make sure it was keeping perfect time. Isn't it wonderful? And look at this little Victorian stairway that leads you further on up. Uh, wow, look at that view. As you can see, we're out on the balcony now. And from this level, you could see Wicklow on one side and you can see as far as the Hill of Hoth on the other. Absolutely stunning views. You've only got to look over there and you can actually see that main expansive bridge that goes across the Liffey that carries the M50 north to south. I will be reminded of the many stories of time as I drive over the M50 bridge and see the clock tower of Farmley. But I started this journey with my dad's watch. Hey, Phil, nice to see you again. Good to see Sorry. you. You're well. Good to see you. Got a wet day, but... Yeah. We, um, we looked at your watch. Come in here and we'll see how it was. We'll see what, when I finish hammering it around the place. Um, this is... This is, your, this is your father's watch, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's a nice little watch. Now, I didn't change the strap for all because, as you said, the sentimental thing about the whole thing is nice. But it's lovely. It's in good shape, you know? Well, it was very, very... It's been well used and... and I don't know. Can you hear the ticker or not? Yeah, a tiny tick. I didn't mm. think it would, but you can mm. actually hear it. Oh, yeah. They're they amazing tick on them, yeah. My dad spent a lifetime tapping it mm. to hurry up. Oh, yeah. Like me now, I do. I'm doing that to my kids. So when when I die, they won't be keeping any watch belong to me. They'll be going good riddance. We've had enough watches and clocks. Jeez, I have to say, the more I hear about time, the more it kind of makes my head. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And no one wears a watch anymore after all this. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. (laughs) This is for the archives. (laughs) Remember the people who used to have a watch, Gordon Benny. (laughs) Philip got my dad's watch to work again. And I got a tiny insight into the wonders of Irish horology heritage. Keeping Time was a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Narration by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Contact Studio. Music composed by Jerry Horn.